Welcome back to another episode of Ramiumptum Ruminations. I'm the host, Scott. In today's very special episode, I have a guest with me. We're going to call this episode From BYU Faculty to Apostate An Interview with Kaisa Berlin Kaufusi, Part 1. Thanks for coming back to listen to another episode of of the podcast. I am very excited for what I've got for you today. I recently had an awesome interview with the lovely Kaisa Berlin Kaufusi. I think it's something that you're going to enjoy greatly. Kaisa interested me in particular because of her background in ancient scripture, which is something that I have long been fascinated with. So I brought her onto the podcast to discuss her time as a teacher at BYU. Now, this is going to be a two-part interview. Unfortunately, we weren't able to, to touch on every subject that I wanted to get to in just one conversation. What you're going to get today is our first chat. Here is the interview. Today, we have a very special guest. Her name is Kaisa Berlin Kaufusi. Welcome to Ramiumptum Ruminations, Kaisa. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. And I love the name. It's so great. (laughs) I'm glad you like it. I do. A funny comment that I received early on in the podcast is someone, someone rated the podcast very highly and then said, this is one of the best podcasts I've ever heard, but I hate the name. (laughs) (laughs) Did they have a, a rationale there? No, they didn't give any reasoning. So if that was you, listener, you're still listening. Please tell me why you hate it. I would love to know. (laughs) No, I I like it. I think it's fitting and it kind of makes me chuckle. So the irony that I was going for was that the Ramiumptum in the Book of Mormon was like for rote messages. And I just, I don't, anyway. So (laughs) (laughs) I think I caught that. Yes. (laughs) That's what I was going for. So I'm glad you caught it. (laughs) I got it. I got it. (laughs) This interview is going to be fantastic. Kaisa is a very articulate woman. She has a blog with excellent insights about spirituality and her take on Mormonism. She comes with a very unique perspective. She worked in the CES department as a professor at BYU teaching scripture. Before we jump into that bit, and I want to talk at length about your experience as a woman in the CES department, but before we get there, let's give my audience a little bit of your background. Where did you grow up? What was life like as a Mormon as a kid? Were you Mormon as a kid? Did you go on a mission? As much detail or as little detail as you would like to give about who you are leading up to um, your time in the CES department. Sure. Okay. So I was, I kind of like to feel like I, or think that I was raised by the CES system (laughs) because (laughs) when I was born, my dad was already working full time as a seminary and institute instructor for the church. Um, So I was born in Eastern Washington. Okay. And we lived there for a couple of years. What town? Uh, Othello. Othello. I have friends from Othello. I'm sure we could, you know, and being <laughs> small, I'm sure we could be like, do you know? And match some people. So One of my closest friends, like closest friends of all time is from Othello. 
Really? Yes. Uh, are they? Okay, yeah, we'll have to go back to that. Yes. We'll play that game later. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, no, it's fine. And, you know, again, I, I was only there for a couple of years, but my childhood brain has these great memories of we were really poor because seminary teachers do not make a lot of money. And uh, so we lived in a little humble trailer park community. And I think those were some of the happiest days of my parents' marriage because um, a strong Hispanic neighborhood and just very loving, good immigrant people. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I grew up hearing Spanish more than I was hearing English. And it just it was really a rich, diverse childhood. Um, and then we got reassigned to Portland, Oregon, which is also kind of a diverse place. Yes, very diverse. That's where I'm from. Yes. Uh, my childhood is full of climbing trees and building sandcastles on the ocean and mm-hmm. swimming in that frigid water, which I love. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. I love the Oregon coast. I love it. And, you know, distinctly as a child, I always remember thinking my dad has a really important job. Um, especially outside of Utah where it's not so common when your parent is involved in the church education system, people, you know, it's like, Oh, his name's Jim, Jim Berlin. Like he knows stuff. And if there were ever any questions, everyone came to my dad. And even as a little kid, I kind of felt like, yeah, that's kind of cool. Like my dad, he's, he's swinging with the cool crowd, you know? (laughs) So was this something that was reinforced in church or just at the home? Oh no. In church all the time. And like in gospel doctrine, he, when he wasn't the teacher, right? Like he was, he's a humble guy. He's my dad, honestly, is one of the best true blue Mormons you'll ever meet. Like like really just trying to make it work and really rooted in ministry and service and um, but super orthodox. So he'd always kind of, you know, be hesitant to raise his hand because he didn't want to outspeak people, but everyone would be coming to him with questions like, well, let's get brother Berlin's perspective (laughs) on that, you know? (laughs) So just a little perspective for the listeners, many of whom come from Utah, right? Outside of the bubble, when someone works for the church, they almost have an instant cred. Yes. Because um, oh, yeah. oh, yeah. no one else in the ward works for the church. And that's right. It's a unique perspective to to work for the church in a place outside of Utah. Absolutely. I I definitely agree with that. Um, and so yeah, you know, and I remember like playing with other children of other CES employers or employees. Um when we would go to trainings and stuff as a family, the wives and the kids would kind of hang out while the men, you know, (laughs) get together and get the real training. (laughs) Misogyny. Oh, you wait, you just wait. (laughs) And that always kind of drove my mom nuts because, you know, she's a real friendly person, but she's, she's got a good brain and she wanted to be in there with the guys, (laughs) but you know, she had to kick it with the ladies. Um, so we, due to some health problems in the family, we reassigned back here to Utah, which is where both my parents are from. And so from my late childhood till now, we've been along the Wasatch Front. I grew up in Davis County, um, graduated from Layton High, and I did serve a mission. So I went to BYU Provo, nearly completed my degree. My degree. I served a mission a little bit later. So I think I was 23 going out on my mission. You nearly completed your degree and then went on a mission. I did. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And that was definitely uh, for a couple of reasons, but needless to say, I always struggled down at BYU. Academically, I struggled. Spiritually, I struggled. Emotionally, I struggled because 
I was getting so many conflicting messages that didn't align with the desires of my heart. And so I really struggled. And I think serving my mission was my last ditch effort to really give my all to God, right? And the only way that I knew how and prove, you know, we're big on checking off those boxes and proving ourselves worthy that I could do it. And I was lucky. I had a great mission. That's not to say it was not without its trauma. Of course. But I had, I served in the New York Rochester mission. And when I received my call, I was miserable. I wanted to go foreign. (laughs) I wanted to learn a language. And I, you know, of course, immediately my dad thought it was awesome because the cradle of the restoration and I get to go learn all of that. And at the time when they were distinguishing between full proselyting sisters and site sisters, I was assigned to be a quote unquote site sister. And so I learned a lot of the history and was privy to what was going on at those church historic sites, much like the Temple Square sisters. Now, I have heard that that Temple Square sister missionaries do serve for a couple of transfers outside of Temple Square to get a more traditional experience. Is that the same with your mission? It is the same. Yep, it's the same. We, during the high peak seasons, we were there, you know, 7.30 in the morning till 9.30 at night. Um, And then we would be assigned areas where we were living in the various little hamlets and townships out in that area. Um, and then in the off season, we would get back into the into the typical proselyting work. So best of both worlds. It was really great. That's interesting. That's very cool. Yeah. And so my mission had a real big impact on me um, with furthering my desire to not necessarily like conform to orthodoxy and like be a true blue Mormon, but Uh, My love for the scriptures just exploded and my desire to study things academically. Um, We at the uh, the Hill Camorra Visitor Center, there's a library downstairs. And you know how it is when you serve a mission, there's like a church approved library and you can only read. I mean, now things have changed so much. I don't even recognize these missionaries anymore. (laughs) But when I served, like you could only read approved books. Um, And there was only so much of that I could handle, but we had a library down there. So in addition to the approved library, we had manuals that we had access to because we were giving tours. So we had the traditional missionary stuff that we could access plus these manuals. But in addition to that, there were senior couples all over these sites. And so they had like a special senior couple library down there that was for them. But I would go down there all the time. My companion and I would. That's awesome. Yep. We'd go into the basement and, you know, especially during the winter when no one came in for hours at a time. Specifically, I remember reading through this really neat uh, typewritten copy of lectures from Hugh Nibley. Wow. And it was a treasure. And it just opened my, you know, Hugh Nibley is one of the most uh, sporadic, like genius brains of his time. And so when you read his lectures, he's all over the place. And it was, it was so thrilling to me to make all these connections and consider points I hadn't considered. And um, yeah, I'll talk a little bit more about that later as I... I have two questions before we transition sure. to a different thing. So you, you had said that you sparked an interest or love for scriptures. What about the scriptures interested you so much to read? Because many missionaries don't study the scriptures very much. Many missionaries aren't even motivated to read anything outside of the canon. 
Right. <laughs> so I'm an odd one. Um, I grew up. So I, only I can have relate. Yep. Yeah, I love it. I only have one sister and we are distinctly different. She was the athletic uh, type. And I was like the, I want to go hide in my closet and read my books type. And I kind of blossomed socially later. But as a child, like I was heavy in the scriptures and probably struggled a little bit with some scrupulosity. Um, but because my dad was a CES guy, he had a great library. So like I had read I had read the Journal of Discourses and the History of the Church, those volumes, probably by the time I was 11. Oh, wow. Like, oh, yeah. I had these real distinct memories of being downstairs and kind of being traumatized as I would encounter this difficult history. You know, at the same time, I was working through the Bible, specifically the Old Testament. And so that was fertile ground to have some really hard but awesome conversations with my parents about you know, what is this? How, how am I supposed to process this? And what can I get from this when this just seems like a bunch of trauma and a mess, you know, whether it's church history or biblical history. And so I had a, I was a little arrogant, I'll admit, but I, I entered the mission field with a really strong knowledge of the scriptures. Like that was my forte. Um, I had a really good base knowledge of scripture mastery. Plus I learned I could weave in and out of those scriptures and just really, you know, interject them in my speech very comfortably. Um, and so, but I hadn't had any Greek or Hebrew training at that point, but I grew up hearing it specifically uh, biblical Hebrew from my dad as he would read. And also the church would consult him on things when he was working in scripture translation. Any particular time period of biblical Hebrew or just like a generalized um, so my dad, his, his strength is like the Masoretic text. So, okay. you know, the Pentateuch and then the later, the later volumes of the old Testament, that's kind of rabbinical commentary stuff. If you go beyond the text. Um, so I would say those first five books really influenced my perspective on God and the restoration and the covenant that God has made with his chosen people. So I don't know if that answers your question. That does. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the scriptures on my mission and yeah, there's, it's a largely Rochester, New York is a largely Jewish area, okay, which was thrilling to me. And I'll hit on that later in our discussion about how that kind of impacted my, it was a catalyst for my desire to learn more. Um, yeah. So served my mission, came home. There were some experiences on my mission that really opened my mind to the fact that God is so much bigger than I ever thought he was or she was, or they are, <laughs> as I say now. I try and use that mantra as well. And I try and say it in a different order every time. <laughs> Excellent. Keeps us humble. Keeps us guessing. And it was humbling for me because I I was trained with all of the LDS apologetics. You know, it was funny when we would have tours that came in and they were like from Christian uh collegiate seminary groups that would come in, you know, students training for the ministry, they knew their stuff and they would gently poke at us with questions that they knew they could catch us up on. Well, I knew the, you know, the quote unquote Mormon answer to those questions. And the it apologetic was, response. I did because I had been raised, I'd been trained on it. My dad and I had hit all those topics growing up and, uh, more than one occasion, the senior couples would gently like, well, let's defer. Let's ask Sister Berlin what she thinks. And of course, that just fed my ego oh, yeah. tremendously. And so I, I realized early on, I, I was good talking in front of people. And I loved having that dialogue of different uh, perspectives. And so that was a great fertile opportunity for me to really develop those 
interests and talents. Very cool. Yeah. So I came home. Um, I met my wonderful husband and that should be a podcast in itself. Okay. <laughs> Just navigating. Uh, he's Pacific Islander. So navigating the intercultural, interracial marriage. Um, the church is very big culturally in Tonga specifically. And so, you know, that has influenced our marriage as well in wonderful ways and also in some challenging ways. Um, but my husband served and had a great experience on his mission. We met at a time that we were both kind of on that post-mission high. So, of course, got married within a year. So a little awkward, a little... Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> well, he he wasn't as much. He was just super sweet. And I was like, let's read the enzyme on our dates to keep up with our spirituality. And I'm so embarrassed now. Like, I can't even... Uh, anyway, but he teases me still. I think many, many missionaries have had a similar experience where they're they're not quite adjusted off of the mission yet, and they they do and say things that they regret. And I have well, had my fair share of awkward encounters. I was a hot mess. Like we're we're kissing on our first date, but I still want to read the enzyme, right? Like <laughs> I didn't know what was going on. Oh, so it, that was great, and we had you know so. But I realized early on that we were very different and we came at things from a different perspective, which has actually proved to be one of the strong points of our marriage, but it, we had to work through that to get to that point. Um, so he was playing football at the time at the university of Utah. I was trying to teach CES, which I'll talk about later. Didn't really pan out. I took a job in international education at the U while he was doing school and sports. And it was during that time that I, um, enrolled in a master's program through Regent University in Virginia that had a modular option. So I'd fly out once a semester and meet with my faculty, you know, for a week long kind of uh, seminar experience and then do the, dis the distance option. Um, so not my ideal, but it was perfect for me at the time while I was still working full time. And um, that is what got me hired to teach. So I you know, worked for BYU for five years in the ancient scripture department, loved, loved it. Um, it was a challenge because we have three young children and I got pregnant and had those babies all during that period. Um, so you were employed in CES. I was. As a mother. And that is, I'll talk about that. Um, wow. That is very uncommon, but the... When we talk CES, I can just clarify, the church education system has various departments underneath it. Seminaries and institutes is its own world. S&I, separate yes, from, okay. Religious education at BYU. So when I was hired, I was hired under the Department of Ancient Scripture with BYU. And that was the branch of CES I worked for. And the differences are fascinating, which we will talk later okay. <laughs> because I had been raised kind of in that seminaries and institute environment. And then what I discovered on BYU's campus was like a whole different kind of energy, a whole different dynamic. Um, but those two energies definitely would clash when we would have trainings, when we would have uh, board meetings. And so you would have these trainings together. With yeah. both SNI and your department. Frequently, yeah. Okay. Yep. So we jumped past this, but what motivated you? Like why why teach with CES? Especially as a woman <laughs> in the church. Yeah. 
you know, growing up again, I, that was all I knew, um, is that, um, I love the scriptures. I love the classroom environment. I was raised visiting my father in his classroom or Institute class. Um, or there was, you know, for, I think 20 something years, my dad also worked, um, in the church office building as a scripture translation supervisor. So I was heavily involved in scripture. I was always observing the seminary, you know, kind of, uh, culture and being a part of it. And that was kind of all I knew. And I also knew that they didn't have women. Like you did not see women there. And when you did, they were, and I have to be really careful how I phrase this, but they were usually unmarried, older, um, very sweet, wonderful sisters, but did not have families and, or they were secretaries. Right. Yeah, that was that was one of the things that I was curious about is what would what would be the percentage of women that weren't secretaries working in a department such as yours? Yeah. So when I was hired for BYU at the time, they had just uh, updated their policy. And by they, I'm talking about the church education system. And so there was a time that the hiring policies for women were different for seminaries and institutes than the university hiring policies. And it's really fascinating when you get into it because it's actually church-wide. These restrictions that they had on women in seminaries and institutes, specifically when a married woman would get hired on the rare occasion she did, she didn't last very long because it was policy that when she became pregnant, which was a a given, right, expected, that she be terminated because it was very much encouraged that, you know, a woman's place is in the home and also that she set that example for her students. And I remember when I, I, so when I came home from my mission, I jumped right into the in-service training, which is a, a set of classes that you enroll in at your local Institute to train you and develop you potentially for a seminaries and institute career. And then they kind of weed you out, right? And they tell you from the beginning, don't get your hopes up. Uh, Like it's under 10% that we actually hire. And as a woman, I mean, 2% easy. And over the last 15 years, we've seen like, you'll see a lot more, you'll see more sisters Young, younger sisters, also married sisters, teaching seminary, but it wasn't that way because of this policy. And it was, I mean, I was in tears because I did not know that. Um, and when I sat down and was interviewing for these potential options, it was, it was so strange. Like I didn't feel like there was any compassion for me. It was kind of like this benevolent patriarchy of like, well, sister, this is your highest calling and you understand how important it is to enter that role as a mother. And at the time (laughs) I thought, well, for all I know, I might be the breadwinner in our home, you know, as my husband continues with athletics and who knows what, maybe he'll want to stay home with the kids. I was progressive. He was progressive. And I thought, how dare you make that decision for me? Yeah. Well, that's, that's them putting a ceiling on you before your career has even started. Which is exactly another reason why you don't see women with children in positions of authority in the church education system, because they don't have the chance to accumulate years of experience underneath them. They just don't. And a few times you will see women that have been appointed like an institute director position, but those are usually outside of the system, uh, kind of like a token offering to make things look less sexist than they actually are. 
almost like uh, they have some quotas that they need to meet without me, without knowing anything. That's kind of the impression I get. So I, I don't want to say that that's the case, but yeah, no, I mean, because it makes it look better, right? Like, oh, we're not, we're not as misogynist in our policies as you think. See, there's a woman over here. <laughs> Binders full of women, right? Isn't that what Mitt Romney said? I think so. <laughs> so it was interesting when I decided to, um, not give up kind of on that dream of being in the classroom. Part of what motivated me was, you know, at that time, my love for the restored gospel, which as I've deconstructed, I see as just my love of general ministry. I really enjoyed working with the youth. I enjoyed working with young singles, um, college age kids, which is why I took a job at the University of Utah in administration at the time. And, you know, as I as I look back, I just realized I really enjoyed being in a place where I could offer security, stability for someone and discuss ideas. That's really what was pushing me. And uh, it just so happened that my nerdy passion is religion. And so it's a win-win. <laughs> I can totally relate to that. <laughs> when I completed that program with Regent University, that was, I whether you want to say the universe conspired in my favor or it was God's hand or however you look at fate, um, that was the beginning of my deconstruction officially, I would say, because while I had always had questions and shelf items, I never really gave myself a chance to dig in and, uh, examine them. Yeah. And I, I have memories of being on campus in Virginia, just weeping quietly in the library as I'm studying these things and realizing, wow, like, I only have a very small piece of the pie and even that is full of holes. <laughs> so what changed? What what about this education allowed you to question or allowed you to look at it differently? Great question. Uh, I would say the first thing is that it wasn't a church school. Um, a lot of people that teach seminaries and institutes or even at BYU in the religious education department they have been trained by the system, right? So the their lens is kind of a, I don't want to say whitewashed. I don't really like that word, but like a very carefully redacted and uh, specific with a specific agenda type history. Yeah. The, the way I look at it is like a curated version of the scriptures. Oh, absolutely. And as I studied uh, at Regent, it was real interesting to see other churches do that too. We're not the only ones who do that because see, I was doing a master of, master's of arts and some of my colleagues were doing MDivs and also PhDs or uh, ministry doctorates. So there were all kinds of us coming from different perspectives, but the curriculum that was presented to us was diverse and it was academic. And so what opened my eyes was realizing we're all kind of taking these different denominational positions. But I think I said to you in, in our pre-discussion, you know, I would realize as I'm writing a research paper that let's say three of my major sources were all PhDs and experts in their field, and they disagreed with each other. And, and you're kind of raised to believe, I think, as a Mormon, that the more education you get, the more you're going to see that the gospel is the answer. We have the answers. Like, so don't, you know, and I was kind of raised with rose colored glasses, like mm -hmm. don't get out there, get that education and show the world how it all connects and be that voice. Um, you know, I'll have to, I have to jump back in time. I think you'll find this interesting as a child. My, again, I told you my parents and their individual 
perspectives on things had a huge impact on me. And I remember being down at Temple Square with my dad when General Conference was still in the tabernacle, the old pioneer one. And Sherry Dew was walking by. And I was young. I think I was probably a beehive, so 12 or 13. I was down on Temple Square with my father. It was between sessions and Sherry Dew was walking in front of us. And my dad said, Kaisa, that's Sherry Dew. And I knew who she was, of course. And at the time she had some position in an auxiliary uh, capacity. And he's like, I want you to go go talk to her. And I, absolutely not. I'm not going to go <laughs> talk to her. Like, hi, Sherry, I'm an aspiring Mormon young woman. Like, I'm not going to. And so my dad, and I kind of remember this twinkle in his eye, he shoved me. <laughs> <laughs> he shoved me into her and I stumbled into her and she kind of looked back and I, Oh, I'm so sorry. She's like, no, no, that's okay. And you know, she had somewhere to be. So she hurried on and my dad grabbed my shoulder and he kind of shook it. And he said, you just touched Sherry do. And I want you to remember. He even, this was very intentional. He said, I want you to remember that Sherry do has a voice and you Kaisa, you have a voice and you can be a Sherry do. Wow. And, I mean, I've never forgotten that. Yeah. Um, and so I think as I continued on with my formal education and career aspirations, yeah, I mean, I thought the church needs women who yes. can speak up and speak out. And and I had enough, I had enough people rooting for me in places of impact, I would say that I believed it. I genuinely believed that God was carving out a path for me. And that those doors were going to open and I was going to help be a voice of progress for the church because I started to realize, man, we've got, we've got messes. We got to deal with (laughs) all over the place. And I'm going to be that woman who's going to be able to talk about it, but show a faithful perspective. And I really think things are going to change. So I was hopefully optimistic. Um, But of course, at my time at Regent University, really really solidified my faith in the grace concept. Now, that's not something that Mormons typically talk about or really even discourse about ever. You know, and even those who say, you know, he's in the Book of Mormon, we have that phrase, born again. And there's all kinds of reasons why that phrase is in there. (laughs) Arguably, the Book of Mormon is very filled with grace. I mean, very much so. All of the stories about repentance are, are grace stories. It's that one moment like a dramatic event, an appearance, an angel, what have you. And suddenly they're yes. a whole different person. And and those yes. are grace stories. Uh, Scott, yes. It's built into the theology. I would pump that into my students and say, why do you think you're any different than say Alma, right? The worst of the worst who literally kind of was knocked out by the Lord. And three days later, he's a different person. Do you not believe that the Lord can change you? I mean, I pumped it hard in my classroom and I would have specifically young men, I think, that were struggling with hating themselves because of pornography and who knows what, you know, tears in their eyes and tears in my eyes because, and I still believe it today, whether, you know, I believe it in the same theological perspective, I'm not sure. But I do know the power of self-acceptance and the the power that comes with starting to say, I'm loved, I'm okay, I'm not broken, I, I'm okay. And uh Man, you know, you can't go to a non-denominational, but quote, Christian school and not get a heavy dose of grace. And I'd say I walked away from there for the first time in my life, fully understanding I'm accepted of God. 
I do not have to go through a priesthood authority figure to be forgiven. So, of course, I had tension there, right, with the church policy. <laughs> yeah, that's not orthodox. Yep. And I knew it. And I'm like, I'm just going to have to work with this one. But I, I knew it. I knew that they had no authority over me and that I could go straight to my Savior and that he was, you know, and uh, understanding the scriptures, it all clicked, right? Yeah. Like. He is our great high priest. What does Paul talk about in Hebrews and hit over and over again? The veil of the temple was rent. There is no intermediary between us and the holies of holies, the presence of God. We literally get to walk in there because of what he did. And it's, you know, in Mormonism, we miss the mark. I'm sorry. Like there are some people that get it and teach it well. And I think I tried to be one of those people, but our theology does not really back that up because. We're constantly, you know, I, President Nelson, I think a couple of years ago said something about strive to become a little bit more worthy. And that just grated at me because I thought, <laughs> where does it end? It doesn't. Where does it end? Where do we stop becoming a little more worthy and allow God to transform us? And I think I walked away from Regent realizing it's not about what we attempt to do. It's about what he already did. And I believe that with every fiber of my being. And, uh, you know, <laughs> so I, CES, this this is what happened. So I felt the need to get back to BYU's campus and just connect to some of the people in the department. I lucked out, Scott, because there's two departments in religious education. There's church history and doctrine, and there's ancient scripture. Okay. And at the time, Camille Frank Olson, uh, she's retired now, but she was the chair of ancient scripture. So, of course, she's a woman. So, a woman chair of ancient scripture at BYU. Yes. And I'm like, okay, she's going to get me. Like, will it lead? We at least have that in common. Uh, and when I read her bio, I saw that she had been seminary and institute for a very long time. Um, I saw that she had served her mission in France. I had spent a lot of time in France. So, I had my family. So, we had that in common. Um, and that she had done research with the Palestinians in Israel. And I love the Palestinians and had spent some time there. And so now was she was she also married with kids or was she single? No. Okay. Camille had been single most of her life. And then shortly after being hired at BYU, she married a wonderful guy who was a widower. Okay. Um, so she does not have any children of her own biologically. And not that there's anything good or bad. It's just, that's like a neutral thing. I was just curious. Yeah. But I think it's important to detail because again, would she have had those years of experience in seminaries and institutes? She would not have. Yeah. Um, absolutely not. And that was so, what I was getting at with my question. Yep. So I, I set up an appointment with her and, you know, I just, I wanted to be like the cool recent graduate, but I wanted to conform to like what I thought Mormonism needed and so I go in her office and I'm just so nervous, right? I've got my jacket on and my collared shirt and I'm wearing pants. My mom was like, don't wear pants. You can't wear pants. They're going to immediately <laughs> write you off. And I'm like, mom, things have changed. You know, I'm so naive, right? Things yeah. have changed. Well, luckily, Camille was in pants too. So I was like, okay. They uh, still had, you know, for seminary and institute teachers, women were required to wear dresses or skirts. But at the university, they didn't have to. So I was like, okay, sister friend, we're wearing the pants. Um, so I got to pause you. There's this, there's this great irony. Both Camille Frank Olson and Sherry Dew, in a church of 16 million, these are two women, only two. And, and you go into this expecting to be a third in this yeah. church of so many people. Yeah. 
that no women have any chances. And here you're walking in hoping to also get there when so few have even gotten the opportunity to sit at the table. I I think back on that, Scott, so many times how I really, the roll of the dice just struck out for me. Like I, again, whether you call it fate or God's hand was in it, which at the time I definitely thought it was, and I still do to some extent. Um, but yeah, I, I realize how fortunate I was. And we'll, we'll get to your belief down the road. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. So yeah, I walk in there and I sit down and just connect with Camille immediately. I think she saw my passion for the gospel, my passion and my ability to navigate these hard uh, subjects that the youth were asking questions on at the time, because I, again, had been raised with the apologetic answers and now having served a mission and also having a master's degree behind me, I said, I'm ready to enter the classroom, Camille, because I want to continue my missionary work essentially. And I think, I just think knowing, you know, being in the position she was in, she realized we need more women. Yeah. Here she is. She's so to, to be hired adjunct for the most part, you have to at least have a master's degree. Um, so I had it and she literally made a phone call while I was in her office to the gentleman in charge of scheduling the various courses throughout the department and told him to put me on the docket. Like she didn't, she hadn't even looked at my resume. She hadn't read my thesis. Uh, we didn't talk about, you know, my academic strengths per se. I think she just knew we've got to get her in the system. Um, and she was able to do it. So she kind of used her privilege to help me. She was making space at the table and, uh, for the first year and a half, I was, uh, so I started teaching that fall. I, and this was 2014. This was 2014. Yeah. Okay. And I had just had my first baby. And so sometimes, you know, I'd, I'd wear him. I'd yeah. bundle him up to my chest and he'd come <laughs> into the classroom with me, which was cool. And I think they loved it, you know, to see I'm multitasking. I'm showing that women can do it. Well, especially for the women in the class. Yes. Like, and, and we can keep it real and we can still focus on our goals at the same time. And, and you can be a mother and a scholar yes. and influential all at the same time. You like there's can. no, yeah, that, that example is so important and it's missed in the church. And I remember when I was in my undergrad at BYU being in tears many occasion, uh, many an occasion, because I just thought you can't do that. How can I? I? Because I didn't have any examples, Scott. Does that make sense? Like I, I couldn't look to any women and say, oh, well, she did it. Or, oh, well, she did it. All I had was the legacy of uh, over the pulpit talks from the brethren on why I shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> and then I found out that uh, Elder Renlin's wife went to law school while she had her first baby. And that baby had a nanny and she did it. And I remember getting in kind of some tense arguments with my father, like, <laughs> well, sister Renloon did it. And he's like, well, you know, I did. I think there's more to that story. And I'm like, well, this is what we know. And she's proud of it. And she practiced law and she was a mother. You almost have to use the brethren. And by that, I'm, for those that aren't members or might be listening, that's the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and the prophet and such. The, you have to use their personal examples to justify why yes. you're straying from the normal path. Yes, because if that's not the case, then you have no, if the brethren did it or could are doing it, somehow it's okay. It, they can break orthodoxy, right? But we can't, um, or their families can. 
which, yeah, we can discuss that later. But so I get hired on. I was part of kind of this uh, trial team of young scholars who had just been hired. Three of them had PhDs. I was the only one with just a master's. John, by the way, was actually in there too. Because John oh, is really? John. Yeah, he's he's a great, I mean, I really enjoyed like working with him because of his just overall cheery personality. We had very different approaches in the classroom, but we went to several trainings together. I think there were like five of us, six of us max. Um, So John and I, John has like a master's in education, I think, or instructional technology. So he's not necessarily like a scriptorian by training. Uh, He's just a real good teacher. Um, but the rest of the guys had PhDs and were looking for tenure track positions. At that time, I had made it clear I'm going to be doing a PhD um, in a few years. And so I think they wanted to kind of keep me in the circle of like potential tenure track hire. So I was part of this group that got special training to teach the revised curriculum that was going to be mandatory across all seminaries, institutes and uh, BYU religion courses, which was these four fundamental courses that they had restructured to help quote unquote inoculate the students uh, against, you know, basically open discussion, the internet, right? The CES letter, all these things that suddenly are hitting the kids and uh, they're realizing we've got to deal with this. We've got to give them some better answers than it's all anti it's all lies because guess what? It's not all lies. And a history book isn't necessarily anti-Mormon literature. And we've got to deal with this. <laughs> history is neutral. That's the thing that people just don't understand. Is like history is just history. Like, it, these are things that happened, and you can make conclusions about motives and such. But if we don't Certainly. have anything written by the person, it's yeah. just something that happened, and and you have to you have to deal with that and make assumptions absolutely based on these events. And when you start to realize that you know there are several other valid conclusions, when one digs deeper into the history, we've we've got to grapple with that. Um, so again, we were all teaching these courses. I specifically just taught teachings and doctrines of the Book of Mormon and, uh, oh, that Jesus Christ and the everlasting gospel, because that was heavily Bible. Um, and they gave us the, so just the gospels or what would you, what would you focus on in that? This was the interesting thing, Scott, they gave us a lot of liberty. So if one semester I wanted to focus on seeing Jesus through the lens of the old Testament, I could teach it. I would just have to write it into my syllabus. Yes. Actually, I mean, again, as ideal as it could be, right? How cool is that? Um, And then one one semester I would, uh, you know, reading the Book of Mormon through the lens of the New Testament or however I wanted to do it. And I, I diversified my syllabus each semester. And I was usually teaching two or three courses, sometimes the same class, sometimes different classes. Uh, And so it just kind of kept me fresh and I'd switch things up and kind of try and go by what I felt I needed to teach at the time. But that allowed me to be part of this unique training where I was um, being trained by kind of quote unquote, some of the greats, you know what I mean? Like some of the people that were well-published and had names that people would recognize down there in that department. And I, I grew to have a lot of respect for them, but that also kind of gave me insight into some of the challenges they had as academics um, in the ancient scripture department. So like Tom Wayment, Eric Huntsman, Gaskill, Belknap, Lincoln Blummel, um, all of these guys in their various fields are trying to, to dance that line of faithful Mormon, but also biblical scholar or Christian history scholar. 
So for for my audience that's unfamiliar with some of these, and we don't have to dig too deep, so just like real, like, you know, thousand feet up overview. What are some of these lines that they have to dance and and why do they have to dance around them? And you would have had to done this as well because you're in this very same department. Yes, exactly. So the the ancient scripture department is dealing with exactly that. Uh, so Old Testament, New Testament, and the Book of Mormon, and then anything else, church history related, meaning LDS church history, world religions, and the Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, is the church history department, um, church history and doctrine. And so, you know, as you study the Bible critically, and this is something that you'll notice if you pull up the CVs of these various instructors across the departments in ancient scripture, you're going to find people with PhDs in Hebrew Bible, PhDs in Greek New Testament, early Christianity, um, conflict in the Middle East and like textual cross comparison, or, you know, they are very specifically looking at things that related to the development of Christianity or Judaism at the time that they're focusing on. And uh, what you start to realize, again, is not only the conflicting viewpoints, the, you know, you talked a little bit about the documentary hypothesis. Uh, for those that aren't aware, the documentary hypothesis is this idea that the first five books of the Old Testament, classically, people say, oh, yeah, Moses wrote them. But a careful reading <laughs> of the new te- or of the first five books of the Old Testament, immediately a careful reader will go, wait a minute, Moses... First off, Moses dies, and then he keeps writing. <laughs> the most conservative reader cannot look at Deuteronomy. Yes, you start to see some problems, and even exactly, and even in Genesis, right? Wait a minute, with the creation, this looks like there's two different people talking here, different perspectives. So you start to study and realize most likely there were a variety of sources that later redactors, scribes, uh, used to compile what is now the Pentateuch, right? The first five books of the Old Testament. And that was heavily influenced by uh, political narrative, religious identity, and the need for this obscure tribe called Israel in the middle of various other peoples in the Middle East to have a legacy, a history, and something that could give them identity for generations to come. Uh, well, there's there's a power to myth, regardless of where you stand on, yeah. on what the Pentateuch is doing. The right. power of myth is in every culture. We have it also in Mormonism. The histories that we talk about, Joseph Smith and all these stories, they're mythological stories that are designed to help the culture and society understand what's important and bind us together. And and the same thing is happening in the Pentateuch when it's being created in these various... Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And so I think, you know, for me... On the one hand, I'm thinking, yes, well, of course, right? We believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it is translated correctly. But then here we come as Latter-day Saints and we it's like we're rewriting the history. Like, wait a minute, we're stepping away from a literalist approach to the Bible and we're okay with that. But now here we have these revelations of Joseph Smith coming out in the form of the book of Moses and a supposed translation of the book of Abraham that ties us right back into that narrative. And so now we're asking questions about literalism and historicity um, that can make you very uncomfortable when you come out with conflicting answers. And uh, I have found that for some of my scholar friends, including myself, 
the way that we dealt with it was we simply didn't. <laughs> so just ignore the problem. Um, don't address it. So a lot of us had specialties in areas where there would be the least amount of conflict, let's say. Like you write your your dissertation or your thesis on something that could be complementary to Mormonism. Or something that happened, say, during the apostasy, what the Mormons would consider the apostasy. You could research the history of that and never have to run into any You can any talk problems. about it for years. And it's yeah. fascinating. And I have some very well-respected colleagues and friends who still work for the church who are very good at sticking to the facts and not arguing dogma. And, you know, when to some extent, if you're really careful what you say, it's possible to kind of do that dance of there's so much we still don't know, but I'm not going to pretend that this all lines up. I'm not going to pretend that we have all these answers. And basically, you know, my approach sometimes when it was messy and there was no way to pretend it wasn't is I would just lay it all out there. And say, we're in a time where because we're dealing with this history more than we ever have, we are going to have to ask some harder questions and come up with some better answers. And you're going to be part of that narrative. And in the meantime, I was able to at least, you know, really focus on the ethics and the morals of of the Jesus story and really motivate my students through that. And some people can do that better than others. Um, I have found as you look at those apologists who are trying to get into defending specific controversial doctrines or positions of the church, most of them maybe at one time have been connected with the department or BYU, but they're usually actually not an academic at BYU. If you if you look at like the current hot church apologists, they're somewhat detached because you have to be or you will get nailed down. Um, like totally, they're going to nail you. So yeah. The the claims that you have to make about I mean you can pick any part of the scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, even, you know, specific books. The claims that you have to make about them to make Mormonism work in every yes. facet yes. are untenable. You cannot defend them. And the, and you will get you will get shunned in academic circles if you pretend to keep up that facade. And so most Latter-day Saints uh CES guys, I should, that's redundant, Latter-day Saints, CES yeah, guys. That's well, right. CES guys that work for BYU, at least in ancient scripture, they don't even play the game. Um, they'll grab, they'll chew on it a bit and they'll admit the nuance, but they do not take an overly aggressive position on apologetics. They just won't, they just won't do it. On one hand, you have to have an amount of personal integrity to look at this and just say, it's messy and I don't have an answer. And I'm not going to give an answer that doesn't work. Yes. Yeah. You know, and I would say for me, that was, that was both kind of the beginning of my formal deconstruction, but for a time it also sustained me because it, I I thought it was working. And for a time it kind of did because I had enough moral support around me and colleagues who were doing the same thing that uh, uh, for the time it worked, but it didn't work forever. Obviously, Um, and you can even see if you study like the history of the apologetic movement with BYU in in relation to anyone connected to BYU. uh, For example, uh, was it the Foundation for Ancient? Yeah, Farms. Yeah, Farms versus what is now the Maxwell Institute. Or there's a new name for it now, but I can't remember. Yeah, there and and again, that's morphing into a less aggressively apologetic dialogue. And a more nuanced uh, interfaith, 
which is my jam. I love it. Uh, what things that the Maxwell Institute are putting out are definitely more up my alley. But for example, uh, if you're paying attention to the news, Fiona Givens was recently pulled as a Maxwell Institute fellow really? because yeah, there's a lot of controversy about her being silenced on talking about Heavenly Mother. And wow. um, I love the subject of Heavenly Mother. If you do a little digging, that was one of her research interests and the Maxwell Institute had asked her not to do it. And she kind of accidentally did it. Becky set a fireside and people were not happy and she's gone. The the great irony, and I've done an episode about this, but there's, there's such an ironic element to this that ancient Israelites did in certain circles believe in a heavenly mother. Asherah yes. oh, is yes. in the Old Testament and there is clear evidence that she was worshiped right alongside of Yahweh. Yep. It's one of those nuggets where I'm just like like come on, Mormons just just It's, it's so right funny. There. It is. Like but the problem is as you well know is because we like to play with this idea that we have this this really revolutionary progressive theology but we actually don't. It's like, oh, but we have a doctrine about the Heavenly Mother. Oh, okay, well, tell me about her or them. Yeah. That's we can't. Yeah. Because we don't actually know if there's one or many. We don't, she has no voice. She has no voice. She has no representatives that mimic her priestesshood. Yeah. And we have a problem with that. And I think it's beginning to be called out by younger generations. Like, don't, don't tell me I have a heavenly mother, but tell me I can't talk about her. I can't pray to her. I can't have a relationship to her. Imagine you as a mother. Imagine if your husband told your kids your mother loves you, but you can never talk to her again. <laughs> yeah, she's she's and she's behind this door. That's right. She's she's on, on the other <laughs> side of this wall. You can you uh, can't talk to her. You can talk to me. I'll tell her what you say. Yeah. You know, and I, I wasn't, I was always kind of a progressive person, but I would say my feminist fires didn't really kick in until I became a mother. Um, but one of the things I was always sensitive to was when people would refer to God as father, not even the father, just when we pray to father and you've got to, you know, follow the, the, follow the commandments that father has given us. I'm like, oh my goodness. Like as if he's just this, yeah you know, great, isolated by himself power. I just, it really used to rub me wrong. Seriously. Well, and the other great thing that's built into this ancient theology that they should, they just, they just need to use it. But the term Elohim was a family council. It wasn't like, like a higher God. And so like you have right there as (laughs) like a mother and father, like family organization in the word Elohim in the ancient world. Yes, Scott. You know, I think that's something that a lot of Latter-day Saints actually don't understand because they say, well, yeah, most people that have done a little digging understand that the the word Elohim in its context is plural. So it's like, okay, many gods. But what you just said is really like where the money's at because this idea of a god, but also an individual who is constructed of others right? Yes. Other, other components, other individuals that is gender neutral, but also uh, in other instances found in the scriptures, feminine. 
Yes. So what are we doing with this? I know. Well, and then like the other thing that's so great is you, you dig into the the Hebrew. You even have have Yahweh described in feminine terms on yes. occasion in the Old yes, Testament, and that yes. is there's so much there. There's so much there. I remember once reading this uh, response to some someone had suggested that Jesus had feminine traits, and because. He is supposed to be what we can all relate to. He has the masculine and the feminine. And this guy was so offended by that. <laughs> like, I really just have to stop right there. And he pushed back on the, uh, you know, Jesus is the ultimate masculine. And I'm thinking, says who? <laughs> right? Like not says the scriptures, but because that offends your sense of masculinity, we just have a long ways to go. Right. Well, if you glance at mythologies of of so many other cultures, you see that that harmony of the masculine and feminine in deity all the time. Yeah. And it's I I think it's clearly there in scripture, but I'm just some dude. So just some dudes. Watch out. Watch out for those some dudes. Right. Watch out for them because they've got things to say. Yeah. Uh, and you start. Yeah. And as you study church history in general, when I say church history, I just Christian history. You see how the narrative of the church is always heavily influenced by political agenda um, throughout history. And it's no different from or it's no different for the church today. And by the church, I'm talking now about the Mormon church. And on one hand, that's refreshing because we can say, look at the early Christian church. They were kind of a mess and it took them a long time to figure things out. We are still a young church. It's going to take us time to figure things out. But then the problem is, but wait. If we are the restored gospel, and if we have this direct connection to God, shouldn't it be a little bit less chaotic? Yeah. Like, and that's where I think cognitive dissonance starts setting, setting in, and we start asking, okay, what kind of communication do our leaders really have with God? What have they admitted to? And what does priesthood authority have to do with any of this, if, if it has anything to do with it? In one of my previous episodes, and for the listeners that want to look back, it's called is it the same yesterday, today, and forever? Ooh, that's a good one. I asked the question near the end of the episode, if God could talk to prophets, would the church look any different than it does today? Is that a conversation you had with someone as a guest or do you were no, just hashing out some that points? was just me hashing wow, out some points. that sounds really fascinating. You know, I, I usually ask questions like that in, in my episodes or I try and think, overthink is probably more honest. <laughs> but I... I try and explore different answers to questions like that, but many of them have uncomfortable conclusions for a believer. And that they doesn't do. mean you can't believe in God. But oh, certainly. I think I think what's important, especially in this topic that we're talking about, and we've we've totally taken a tangent, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with it. <laughs> the implication is that the hand of man as a believer, you have to make this concession. The hand of men and I'm saying men specifically because women have never been in leadership positions in this. The hand of men is in religion and in scripture from the beginning of time. From the beginning. You know, when you asked me what impact did studying the um, documentary hypothesis have on your faith or your understanding of things, what you just said is it. You recognize that mortality has impacted this, whatever kind of communication we think we have with deity. It's always been through the lens of men, at least in our Western tradition. Yes. David Bakavoy, I'm sure you're familiar with his story. 
He's, you know, far more scholarly and knowledgeable in Hebrew Bible than I will ever be. And he talked about the same concept that as he really got to the root of the text, he realized I cannot like these two, my, my Mormon faith and what I'm now seeing in scripture that I can't erase the tension that exists between them and what it means to me now as a faithful Latter-day Saint, because I can't answer those temple recommend questions with the same assurance, nor, nor should I, because I, I, I simply do not believe in these truth claims anymore. Yeah. And it's not even, a, you know, so many times there's this idea of, well, just believe, choose to believe, <laughs> choose faith. If only it were that easy, Scott, because I know I, I had a, con- a conversation with a good friend of mine and it was, you know, things have kind of grown tense between us as I've kind of pushed back on things. And I understand that happens. It's inevitable. But I brought that up. You know, it's not as if one day I woke up and thought, I'm going to challenge every aspect of Mormonism <laughs> that I know, and I'm going to talk about it. And I'm going to flip my whole life upside down, offend all of my family. Because I think it's a good time to do it. Like this was, <laughs> it's survival for us that go through this deconstruction. We almost have no choice or we will implode or explode one or the other. Oftentimes we do both. But uh, <laughs> it is, it is uh, for me, it is the only authentic response I know how to engage in to find some answers that are more in line with um, my conscience. Well, and more in line with reality. And I, and I don't say that because I'm coming from an agnostic. I'm not sure if God exists and I'm okay with that. But even as a believer, you have to align with as much effort as you can reality with your belief. You have to. Well, and again, at one time that was, that was working for the Mormon narrative. And then, you know, within the last 30 years, man, they can't control the narrative anymore. And so it's, it's slowly being chipped away. I, I had an uncomfortable experience the other day where I was talking to this wonderful woman from Mexico and um, her son plays on my son's soccer team and she's LDS. And she had heard that I had taught for BYU. So assumed technically I still am. I mean, I'm on the record, right? Like I'm on the record, like my membership is still intact, I guess, unless they pulled me and I don't know about it, but that's <laughs> for another time. So she asked and I said, well, yeah, I said, we're, we're, we are distanced from the church, but we were raised in it. And she, you could tell she didn't know where to go from there, but I, I was able to kind of reconnect with her. And she said, well, you know, if you taught religion, you know all about the neat connections between the Book of Mormon and Central America. And and I thought, oh my heavens, oh, no. like what do I say to this woman? Because first off, she is indigenous and she has been taught that these connections are authentic and that that narrative that most scholars will not even talk about anymore yeah. is still the the true narrative. And it made me really uncomfortable because I thought, I don't want to tear down her faith. I know this not to be true. Yeah. Well, it's so sad because her identity has been hijacked. Yes. Yes. And it, it was, it was, a and also as a, as a white woman, like I just felt so uncomfortable, like, oh, you were colonized and let me colonize you again. I know, <laughs> By right? shattering your faith. <laughs> so I just kind of said, I, you know, I deflected and said there, you know, yeah, there are some fascinating things to look at there, which I believe there are. Um, but then we just, I deflected after that. And I just thought, man, there was a time that I was right there with her. 
I believed that stuff. It was, it made sense to me. You mentioned colonizing them. We colonized their beliefs as well. When we say they actually believed in Jesus, it was just a bastardized form of it. That's, that's colonizing their indigenous beliefs. It's, that is another aspect of my deconstruction that I'm just beginning to grapple with having served a mission, even though I served in upstate New York, uh, various native American reservations were on my mission, uh, in our, in our regions, you know, and we go out there with this narrative. We know who you are. Let us tell you, oh my goodness. Right. Like how dare we arrogance? How dare we? Yeah. And I'm doing some serious soul repentance for that, but also finding grace for myself because I uh, didn't know any better. I remember actually engaging with this one wonderful indigenous man. I think he was Iroquois um, tribe, but I was kind of trying to have a dialogue with him. And he was so, he was definitely more spiritually advanced than I was. He was so kind to me and continued to find common ground, but you could tell he was uncomfortable with the narrative I was trying to push. But he basically acknowledged, like, it was kind of that concept of like, namaste, right? Like, I see the good in you, you see the good in me, and I wish you well on your journey. And he gave me this beautiful, like, um, it was like an author signed uh, photography discussion book on the tribes in the United States. And he said, so you can, so you can remember this conversation. And then I went on my way, but I still have that book. Um, and I just thought, wow, and there I was trying to tell him who he was. And I wasn't willing to listen to what he had to tell me about himself. I knew I was there to tell him, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we think as a culture that colonization is over, but we're still doing it when we proselytize to people. Yes. Um, and that's, you know, that's something that the greater Christian world is also grappling with right oh, now. Oh, yeah. Oh, so, yeah. Um, yeah. So we kind of got derailed. I don't know where you want to go from here. Well, I, I hate to cut this discussion short. I'm having so much fun. We got totally derailed and we talked for 20 minutes about something completely unrelated to what we planned on. But I loved it. And I hope that you, Kaisa, enjoyed it as well. Very much so. Yep. I'm here for it. I want to have you back on next week. I want to talk to you again. I want to go over a a little bit more in depth because we didn't even get through your whole story. We didn't even get through your time in CES, why you left and where you are now spiritually. So let's come back next week. We'll have a part two and we we will dig a little bit deeper with your time in CES and we will... We will go from there. So before we end, is there anything else you want to say real quick? Anything you want to plug? Anything you want to talk about? Just real fast. One thought I had, I guess, for people that aren't going to listen to the next segment or don't get around (laughs) to it. (laughs) You know, one of the things that I always tried to push in my classroom was self-knowledge. So when I was at Regents, my philosophy class had a big impact on me. We studied medieval philosophy, but medieval philosophy is essentially an extension of the original philosophers, right? Back in ancient days. And uh, this idea of knowing yourself, the unexamined life is not worth living. That was Socrates. And that to me is, as someone who was raised in Mormonism, I do believe if we're going to have anything that we can pull out of the Joseph Smith narrative that is pure and good is that concept right there. That initial approach to deity when Joseph was in the grove and he was, whatever questions he was asking, right? He was doing that directly between him and God. 
And I do believe that that process is something that should happen with each of us, whether it's the universe, you're talking to a God of a specific religion, or you're going in within yourself and saying, what's great about me? Who am I? What strengths do I have? One of my favorite things about Joseph Smith is the fact that he wasn't afraid to change his mind. And he changed his mind regularly and rewrote what he believed about God and about religion. (laughs) Scott. He rewrote some things? That what? <laughs> this is new to me. No. Yes, he did. No, that's excellent. It's an excellent point. When I was on my mission, I was kind of given a good dose of benevolent patriarchy when I was sharing my passions <laughs> that I wanted to go home and continue on and study and maybe be a professor. Uh, a gentleman who had actually, he was a dentist by profession, but he had been, because he had the right connections. His wife had been... Uh, a Relief Society Auxiliary President for the church. And so he had the end, right? So he had taught at BYU too and loved to flash that around. And of course, he he kind of patted me on the leg and he said, Sister Berlin, we have all the answers. We've done all that research. I have read everything there is. I mean, I, this was like cemented in my brain. I have read everything <laughs> there is to read on this topic. And if you went to my house right now, I could open up my file cabinets and show you the answers to all of these questions. And then he, <laughs> he patted my knee again and he said, it's best if you just focus on the specifics. Basically telling me, I've done all the thinking. We big boys have done it all. So you little sister, focus on the basics and go home and have those babies. And I just remember, I felt this kind of feminist fire budding within myself. And so, you know, even to my students, I said, don't, because someone's telling you something or teaching you something, don't just eat it up. Yeah. Do your own thinking, ask your own questions. Um, and you can't go wrong there because you have to find these things out for yourself one way or the other. I love it. Well, Kaisa, thank you so much for coming. And you said that listeners might not go to part two. I know that every single one of them will because you are amazing. You have such great insight and it has been a pleasure to have you here. And I'm looking forward to talking with you again next week. All right. We'll see you next week. Okay. See you next week. Thank you so much for listening to the episode today. I was very pleased with this conversation that I had with Kaisa, and I am so excited to meet back with her next week and continue our discussion, find out exactly what happened. Why did this professor leave BYU? It seemed like everything was working out. And then the latter half of the discussion next week will be centered on where she is now spiritually and how she got there. So stay tuned. We'll see you next week. It's going to be a great discussion. I hope you have an excellent day.